0: Mr. Speaker, you're at the intersection of business and politics. This is the 14th and G podcast from Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas. Now, here's our host, Dean Hinkson.
1: Thank you for setting your podcast out, 14th and G. I'm your host, Dean Hinkson, coming to you from the lobbying firm of Melman Castagnetti, Rosen and Thomas at the intersection of business and politics in the downtown of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. The capital, the seat of our national government, like any power center, attracts those seeking to influence its policies, either to take or forbear actions seen as advantageous or disadvantageous to a given interest. That is a circuitous definition of what we know as lobbying. It is what we here at Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas do, It is my chosen profession. The derivation of the word is not very obscure. The halls, corridors, and galleries of official buildings were known as lobbies as early as the 16th century in England, and conducting your business in those areas, seeking to influence government officials, was described as lobbying as early as 1820 here in the U.S. But whatever the etymology, the connotation to the public at large is unfortunately negative. Political campaigns, left, right, and center, always have and likely always will decry lobbyists and special interests as bywords for a corrupt process. And though the right to petition our government for a redress of grievances is enshrined in the First Amendment to the Constitution, it's hard to shake the impression that if you get paid to draw up that petition, well, you must be up to something. But when done right, when done ethically and with integrity, lobbying can and does lead to more informed, more balanced, to better public policy. I truly believe that. And it's why I'm so pleased to have as my guest today two people dedicated to just that proposition. The Bryce Harlow Foundation was established to advance integrity and public advocacy and increase understanding of its role in sound public policy David French is the current chair of the Bryce Harlow Foundation. By day, he is senior vice president for government affairs at the National Retail Federation. And Barbara Fasuliak is the foundation's president. David, Barbara, welcome
2: to 14th and G. Great to be here today. Thank you so much.
1: Well, the most obvious question first, uh, who was Bryce Harlow and how did a foundation focused on government relations come to be?
2: I'll take that one. Mr. Bryce Harlow started his career as a staffer, basically, for President Eisenhower. He was famously in D.C. doing research for a graduate program that he was in and kind of fell in love with the Hill. And since then, he has consulted with four different presidents. In between his work on the Hill, he went into public sector and starting the first D.C. office for Procter & Gamble. So with all of this, between working for various administrations, then also with private sector, he wasn't the first person to lobby, as you mentioned, 16th century, but he's known as the first person to take lobbying to a really high degree of professionalism. And he was famous for uh, holding his word. He was famous for bipartisan truthfulness. And the foundation started in 1981 because as he was ending a phase of his career, a bunch of his friends and colleagues hosted a farewell dinner for him. The money left over from that ended up being in a scholarship fund.
1: I encourage you to go to BryceHarlowFoundation.org. He's got a really interesting career in history spanning really 50s, 60s, 70s. He actually went back into the Nixon administration Mm -hmm. there towards the end of his career. He got the Medal of Freedom awarded to him by President Reagan. And as you mentioned, Barbara, the foundation's most Prominent activity is the fellowship. That single scholarship with leftover funds is now turned into a pretty substantial fellowship program.
2: Indeed, it has. Here we are, 41 years later. Bryce Harlow's son, Larry Harlow, who is still around in the D.C. area, said his father would be shocked to know that this was still operating. But 41 (laughs) years later, we have given fellowships to almost 400 people, uh, mostly in the D.C. area but not exclusively. And these people are fitting a very particular profile. They are working full-time, going to graduate school part-time, and who are sincerely interested in a career in lobbying or government advocacy. So these are rising stars in lobbying, and they're very talented. And that's that's the heart and soul, really, of the Bryce Harlow Foundation. Uh, we raise money mostly for that fellowship. The fellowship, in addition to a scholarship, involves uh, wonderful mentorships. We pair each fellow with somebody who is on our board. And we also have an alumni um, advisory board now, too, of people who are a little bit more Uh, new in their careers at the five to seven mid-career mark, and we also pair the fellows with somebody on that board as well. And
1: we really fund those fellowships through the Bryce Harlow Awards Dinner, which I believe is upcoming.
2: Yes, May 3rd, 2022. Mark your calendars at the Marriott Marquis. You can go to bryceharlow.org and uh, look for tickets or just send us an email. So, the way that we talk about how we promote ethics and integrity in government advocacy, you know, we really lead by example. And we lead that through the people we choose to be fellows the people we ask to serve on our board and the people we choose to honor at our annual awards dinner and this year we're so thrilled to be honoring um, senator roy blunt and also mr david castanetti i
1: know him you do i do David French, let me bring you into the conversation. You are, like myself, are a lobbyist. Uh, You head up what's known as a trade association, a collection of companies that uh, in the National Retail Federation are focused on issues that impact uh, retailers in the United States. Here's a challenge I've always had. What do you tell people that aren't in this universe of Washington, D.C. in lobbying and government relations when they ask what a lobbyist does?
0: I get this question all the time. What do you tell people you do? Well, first I have to tell my kids what I do, and my kids still don't fully understand what I do. (laughs) Um, But I I describe it this way. I think I'm a bridge. I'm a communicator. My job is to communicate between members of Congress and uh, agencies and the White House and policymakers and my members. And it's a two-way form of communication. I'm not the expert, but I've got experts in our businesses who can explain every single policy in real terms. And I'm not the expert in government, but I know the people who are, and I can bring them in and explain everything the government wants to do to our members. Uh, Most of what I do is manage that form of communication back and forth so that when Public policy is done, it's done smartly and efficiently and with a minimum of impact negatively on our members and preserving jobs and the opportunity for these companies to grow and be successful.
1: You know, one thing I think that's a little misunderstood about lobbying, it's been for decades predicated in large part on personal relationships. You know, I would say, you know, between the Hill and the administration and stakeholders downtown, it's a pretty well-defined universe of people. But, you know, just because you have that relationship or you make your case in front of a staffer or a member... It is not automatic you're gonna
0: get what you want because there's always almost always somebody on the other side. What I find really interesting about Bryce Harlow in the history of lobbying is that Bryce Harlow was almost the pivot point between the old form of lobbying, which is friends helping friends, you know, do things behind the scenes. To the new style of lobbying, the professional, established, this is the information you need to know in order to operate smartly on both sides of the coin. And, you know, he functioned in a way that was very transparent, very truthful, brought the highest degree of ethics. And he really professionalized a business that had been in the shadows and kind of off the radar screen for most Americans. Uh, Washington has gotten very complicated. The states are very complicated. The issues are very complicated. And uh, lawmakers, even though their staffs have grown over the years, uh, lawmakers are still asked to make decisions in very short time with very limited information that's generated by the government. They need communicators from the outside to help them understand how to do this. You really sort of answered my next
1: question in terms of why. Almost every company of any size uh, has a government relations operation here in D.C. The explosive growth of lobbying, uh, particularly over the last couple of decades, you know, is always an issue. But, you know, you can look at all the different things the government is into now uh, that, that make the, that government relations mission for any company really necessary.
0: Yeah, one business leader I have heard quoted, and I I don't want to quote him because I'm not sure that he actually said it, but my competitors can steal market share from me, uh, but the government can put me out of business, is something I've heard quoted. And I think it's a very accurate description of why Monitoring what's going on in Washington, understanding it. Monitoring what's going on in the states, understanding it. And being present when these conversations happen is really important for for the business community. And uh, let me go back to something that uh, you said earlier about special interests. Anytime I'm asked about this, I make sure people understand that we're all special interests. And there's probably a lobbyist representing you in one way, shape, or form uh, every day in Washington True. or the states. You just don't understand it because you're not directly you know, monitoring everything that's going on. But fortunately, somebody is. Right. That's a great point, David. You know, you talked
1: a little bit about the professionalization of the lobbying industry Uh, A big part of that is enforcing a level of integrity. We've gone from this, you know, sort of clubby, probably very small set of lobbyists to now, I think there are something like 12,000 registered lobbyists uh, here in the nation's capital. And they're registered. They disclose every quarter, the clients, the issues, everything we lobby on. But there have been some very prominent examples of some very bad actors uh, in this industry despite the fact that many thousands of us do our jobs the right way. In your view, is, is that disclosure, is, is the system as set up right now, is that the best way to enforce a level of
0: integrity in this business? I think the most valuable um, enforcement mechanism is trust. And one of my mentors told me this early on, you can lie once, but after that, you're done. If you want to be in this business, you have to operate with the highest degree of integrity. So I think Sunshine, disclosure, transparency are important. They're tools. The public obviously has a right to know. uh, But a higher standard is the standard you hold yourself to and that your clients and the lawmakers that you interact with hold hold you to and hold themselves to. Um, I've been in Washington for 32 years now. I've been a lobbyist for more than 20 years. I believe that Washington is a very ethical place. I believe that the standards are almost always adhered to, and uh, the exceptions are notable, but they they are really the exceptions. Yeah. It's such a good point
1: because uh, it is a fairly self-contained place. I mean, it's a place where a lot of people know at least someone everywhere. And we say it all the time at our firm, all you have at the end of the day is your reputation. Well... Uh, Barbara, as you intimated, we are coming into the Bryce Harlow Awards season, uh, and I am really pleased to have one of the honorees you named here with us today. Uh, Regular listener to 14th and G will know that Boston accent well. (laughs) He's been a friend and a mentor to me and countless others in this industry. He co-founded my firm, and he is the 2022 Bryce Harlow Business Government Relations
3: Award honoree, <laughs> David Castignetti. Welcome to 14th and G. Dean, uh, thank you very much. And Barbara and David, thank you very much for that history lesson about Bryce Harlow and learning your view of how the industry has changed. I think that's very uh, insightful. And thank you. And thank you for the award, most importantly. I have to admit, Dean, if I may, I was a- I actually cried when... Nancy Lamond uh, called me to notify me about being the recipient. I, I'm really honored and proud to, to be this year's uh, winner. Thank you.
0: Well, it's richly deserved, I should say, and, you know, it, it's an arduous process we go through. The board uh, has a, a number of candidates that we consider every year, and only the best of the best cross the finish line, and so congratulations. Thank you.
1: Well, as we all know, Castagnetti is a mouthful. We know him affectionately as Casto. And to distinguish him from the other David in the room, I'm going to say, Casto, you have been a friend and a mentor to me from the day I came downtown uh, over five years ago. Casto, you've had an amazing career, chief of staff in the House, chief of staff in the Senate, uh, you ran Congressional Affairs for John Kerry's presidential campaign in 2004. And, of course, you helped to found this firm. I'm just curious. Uh, let's do the retrospective here, uh, a little this is your life. but <laughs> How have you seen the industry change in the course of your career?
3: That's a great question, and David uh, touched on many of the points. To me, the way I think about lobbying today, Dean, as David mentioned, like originally it was who you knew Kind of You had a couple of go-to people, and you tried to get things done based on your reputation. The way I look at the world today is very, very different. I had a high school football coach who told me, kiss, which means keep it simple. Then he added, stupid, but I'm not <laughs> supposed to say that anymore, so I won't. But the way I look at it today is I look at it as a 10-chapter book. In chapter one, you still need traditional lobbying to tell the story Tell the member, tell the staff why he or she may care about this. And you still need chapter 10 to help close the deal. The rest of it, and I think what David was implying, that the rest of the game has kind of changed. So the rest of the way we operate, right, telling chapters 2 through 9 are very different. Some people like the traditional meeting. Some people prefer social media. Uh, some people still actually read a hard newspaper, right, if you can believe that, uh, this day and age. And you have to think about, to me, Dean, who you're communicating with. And is it that 25-year-old staffer that's helping make the decision and the way he or she may consume information? Or is it somebody 40, 50, 60 who consumes the information differently? And you have to adjust to what they want. You also have to create coalitions. You can't be dependent on a person to just drive your issue. You have to provide support for that individual. And whether it's through a grassroots mechanism, as as David kind of implied, or is it through kind of getting other members to agree with that person? Is it getting trade associations to weigh in to help create the path forward for the member? You've seen the world kind of turn upside down. Uh, quite a bit because it, it's just so much bigger, Dean. I think, as you said, there are over 12,000 people in this industry. And not only though, Dean, I think the biggest change I've seen over the last five or six years is really, to me, is everybody thinks about passing legislation. Everybody thinks about stopping legislation. Right. But the other pieces of, of lobbying that matter, are how are you dealing with regulatory agencies? What are you dealing with in federal sales if you're a contractor to the federal government? How does it impact mergers and acquisitions? And do you have an activist federal trade commission or a securities and exchange commission? And what does that mean? You help predict trends and what's around the corner now. People always want to know what's next, right? You need to help them think about what's out there or building a brand. My greatest uh, example of learning in, in this business, and David will appreciate this, is Walmart has been my number one teacher in terms of clients about how the game has changed and how to look at ESG-related issues and integrate them into issues that you care about. So there's a new universe theme of the way lobbying exists and the way it kind of all comes together with lobbying government relations, public affairs, ESG, right? Right. It's all one thing now. There's not these competing interests anymore. And, David, we were
1: talking uh, before we started, I mean, just the very fact that we're here on the firm's podcast (laughs) is a bit (laughs) of a
0: change in in how we communicate. Absolutely. Uh, David mentioned grassroots, and I think um, one of the things that's really changed a lot is people think lobbyists can change everything. We can't change that much. Lobbyists can manage issues. Lobbyists can change a word in a bill. You can help them understand that word doesn't work. Grassroots, real people, voters, constituents, um, communications, that can change minds. And so lobbyists have to bridge the changing of minds with the changing of words. And so the business really has changed a lot. And there's so many different tools for changing minds. And, you know, communications is a big part of this.
1: The communications piece, not just how you communicate, but what we're communicating. I mean, just take Axios, Politico, and Punchbowl. There are very rare instances where me downtown or even up on the hill is going to get a big piece of intel and beat it to my client, beat these three giant media operations. Who have uh, dozens, if not hundreds, of reporters crawling all over the place uh, to get that information. I think at one time, you know, getting that sort of intel first uh, was a big part of the game. And it's really, uh, you're just, you're not going to beat those operations
3: now. And I think, Dean, on that, you're you're 100% right. The media moves so much quicker than any one of us as an individual can. The difference is what clients want to know now is how do you interpret that? Right. What does it mean? What's next? Is it just a rifle shot that's out there and they're trying to get people to move? Or is it part of the process in order to get something done or stop something from happening? So it is a whole different game. I put everything in sports metaphors in case you couldn't realize (laughs) that. um, That it's just a different way that the business, again, has changed very much to your point. And
0: and boy, has the political environment changed a Mm -hmm. lot. We live... Right now, in an era of enormous disruption, that analysis piece is a big part of it. Uh, understanding it and being right with your analysis, what it means when so-and-so does you know, something, it used to be a lot easier to see and understand. It is not easy to understand these days. And I think the the
3: lobbyists can add a lot of context and, uh, and clarity. I think one thing, Dean, as, as I think about it, too, that I, I see lobbying as part of the sales team or part of the research and development team depending on the client. So sometimes you're selling a public policy idea, why it works, why it doesn't work, what the other side has to say. David touched on this a little bit, but you also have to understand what the other side says, and you have to explain it to a certain degree when people ask you about it. The other side is, that, as I look at it, I look at it as research and development, because I'm continually learning about how to change the message, redefine the message. Think about another opportunity that may come down the pipeline that maybe we're looking at this wrong and really we should be looking at something else. Like you just have that constant information flow that you're working with uh, every day.
2: Now, let me just jump in here. And I can see this echoed in the fellowship. I think back in the day, almost all of the fellows were getting law degrees, and they were working for corporations. Now that it is really different. Yeah, we still have people getting law degrees, but we have people getting MBAs, MPAs, MPPs, Masters in Public Policy, but also in very particular, like a lot of our fellows have Masters in Communications. They really want to be in the world of government advocacy. They are in the world of government advocacy, but they have a wide range of backgrounds and they're doing a wide range of different things. They're not just working for corporations or trade associations or law lobbying firms. What they're doing mirrors the blend between business and nonprofits and how that all operates and
3: impacts the government. I think, Barbara, just on that point, I I don't think today you can be a good business executive and not understand the role of government. Because it is ESG as well that goes with it. And what we're seeing in, in that space is CEOs are under different pressures. They're under pressures from their constituents, their employees. They have to figure out how to recruit. They have to figure out how to retain younger people on the research that we've looked at through the years, younger people don't mind working for big companies, but they want to work for big companies that are doing the right thing, whatever the right thing is. And CEOs have to process that piece of it, that these issues have implications on my recruitment and retention of workers. So government and public affairs has changed so much in the last years that I'm a big believer that Anyone who's going to be a CEO has to spend a you know six months to a year in their kind of training program to get there to understand what the implications are in Washington. And, yep. and as a
0: retail lobbyist, I should add,
3: consumers matter too.
0: Yes, you you know most of our members won't do anything without having a glimpse into how their consumers might interpret that. Uh, and and you mentioned one of the the big retail companies that does a really good job of understanding their consumers. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so
3: spend good. a lot of time at it We got to remember the old Walmart moms polling that they used to do it was, it was pretty cool
2: well they're coming to the awards <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and also just one last thing on the fellowship which by the way if you are working full time and going to graduate school part time and want to be a lobbyist or are already a lobbyist please apply we are accepting applications now for the 2022 23 academic year and that too you can find all the information you need on BryceHarlow.org uh, but the one other thing I will say is that if you ever worry about the field of lobbying and the future of lobbying, just sit in on some of these uh, interviews that we do with prospective, you know, up and coming fellows, you will feel really good about the future and really good about the direction of the profession.
1: Yeah, uh- it's so true. I mean, I saw it on the Hill, you know, in my own office and in, in other offices, it was not unusual to have a staffer, Uh, in an issue area who is going to get their master's, if not in public administration, in in that issue at night, uh, become a more educated expert.
0: I think when I hire people, I think the Bryce Harlow Fellowship is one of the marks of a a great potential hire. Uh, It's almost like the good housekeeping seal of lobbying approval, uh, because I know they've been through the ringer, and and they're well prepared for what I'm going to ask them to do uh, in their next job. But a little plug for the foundation, one reason people should get involved in the foundation at the Board of Governors level and participate in a fellowship approval process or a search process is it's a great opportunity to know the talent that's out there when you have to go hire Some of the real pros on the Board of Governors use that process to scout for talent. Casto,
1: looking back, uh, as I said in the intro, uh, you've been a mentor to me and I know to uh, a lot of Thank other you, folks. Uh, I think of you and I really think of your work ethic. I wish I were as good at returning calls <laughs> and sometimes as you are.
3: Uh, it's never too late. Uh, you looking back, who mentored you? Yeah, That's a great, uh, great question, Dean. As I think about it, there are different people at different phases of my career, you know. The work ethic comes from my father, you know. My father had to work two or three jobs to support us, and that was a big piece of, you know, who I am and why work is important. You know, my dad always had a work hard, play hard motto, and I try to live by that. You know, when I was in high school... I was very fortunate. I had a, a football coach who, uh, by the name of Armin Carviello who really took a liking to me and helped me go from Medford High School to Andover where I PG'd and football gave me that ability to to do that professionally, which you know, by the way, at 22 years old, I didn't think I was going to be a lobbyist. Um, you know, I, I, at 22 years old, I realized I couldn't play shortstop for the Boston Red Sox, but I really thought I was going to be a college football coach. Like, that's what I was going to do. Uh, I did an internship when I was in college for a guy named Ed Markey, who taught me about politics and messaging and, you know, a very charismatic guy, as uh, many of you have, have worked with, and has been a huge force um, in my life. And he would claim that he introduced my wife and I, which there's probably uh, some truth to that. And, and, and then it, as, as I went through it, I had the privilege of, of working for Norm Minetta, who was the most decent human being I've ever worked for in my life. He was kind, he was understanding. One story I have to tell about just what I learned from Norm, I was in California one weekend. Uh, Anne was pregnant with our first child uh, weekend before the election. I came back from a meeting. It was 3.30 in the afternoon. I pulled into the parking lot, and Norm was sitting in the parking lot with a, another staffer by the name of Kirsten Francis. And he got up. He handed me an airline ticket, and he said, you're going home on the red-eye tonight. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, they just rushed Ann to the hospital. She went into premature labor. Oh my God. Here's the ticket. Here are my car keys because my car's at the airport. You're going home. You know, so I I learned that, like, there's more to life than just work. Like, there's a sense of being a human being and remembering who we are as people. You know, as as a guy who grew up in the East Coast, worked for a West Coast member, had the privilege of going to work for Max Baucus, politics are completely different in Montana than they are in Silicon Valley (laughs) and Boston, right? (laughs) And all of of a sudden... You know what it's like. You go to work for a rural member. And I was like, I had never been uh, on a ranch in my life. I I quickly learned I wasn't supposed to wear khakis on the family ranch. But, you know, it (laughs) took me a time to, like, understand that. And so I've been very blessed to have people around me who've taught me certain things and have challenged me, right? And that's, you know, some people in our business, I I would say. You know, uh, Pat Griffin, who was Bill Clinton's um, head of Congressional, he was a big mentor of mine in thinking about how the business really runs. Not the managing of clients, but how do you run a small business? And some people, um, like Dave Barkany, taught me how to manage a client. Jeff Bergner taught me about how to think about a client. There are different pieces of this business that... I've been very fortunate to learn from people all the time and certainly uh, Bruce and I, I I don't know if Bruce and I would consider each other mentors, friends, business partners, whatever the right words are there, but we've been a pretty amazing team over the years because our strengths and weaknesses are so different that we've actually complemented each other and hopefully set up an organization as to, to move forward for the next 20 years. And by the way, I'm not going to be here for that long, but, but just, just, just to be clear, <laughs> um, that, that we've also set up a succession to kind of take it over as I kind of move on and, and do my own stuff uh, at the same time. So, you know, th- th- different pieces, different parts of my life, been very blessed uh, about the way I've learned and the things that I, uh, I've been able to uh, accomplish uh, at the same time.
1: Well, Casto, let me say, uh, very well deserved. Uh, my congratulations to you. I look forward to celebrating with you at the Bryce Harlow Awards dinner. Barbara, when is it? Where
2: can I get the tickets? It is May 3rd at the Marriott Marquis, reception at 6, dinner at 7, and it is super fun. Like, the room is always filled with energy and enthusiasm. It's one of the few places where lobbyists can actually celebrate Openly, their profession.
0: <laughs> we don't call it the lobbyist prom for nothing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Although it's
2: business business attire, and uh, you can get tickets at Bryce Harlow. Means
3: I got to wear a tie. Is you that is that? Well, tie optional. Uh, BryceHarlow.org.
2: B r y c e h a r l o w dot org. Not Bryce Harper. Bryce Harlow.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much, Barbara, David, casto <laughs> thank you all for joining me on 14th and G Uh, really look forward to the awards dinner. Uh, You can subscribe to 14th and G please subscribe on iHeart, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And once again, guys, great to be with you.
0: Thanks for listening to today's podcast brought to you by the lobbying firm of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas. For more, just type 14th and G podcast into your favorite search engine or look for 14th and G wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. Beam me up, Mr. Speaker.